Well, tonight we're in Philemon, and we realize this truth in regards to forgiveness, that an act of forgiveness is a generous act. The greater that someone sins against us, the greater the need of the expression of love that we need in order to demonstrate forgiveness. Those who are going to forgive much need to first be those who love much, because forgiveness and love are inseparably linked. It's out of love that we forgive. It's out of a rich expression of love that we demonstrate forgiveness towards others. It's out of a selfless sacrifice and care for others that provides the soil necessary for forgiveness to blossom and flourish. We need to be able to demonstrate love and forgiveness because the practice of forgiveness is hard. It's hard because sin itself is bad debt. You're never going to be able to collect enough to pay sin's debt. Even as the scriptures say in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. One sin is enough to condemn, it's enough to kill. One sin provides an immeasurable debt. When people sin against us, they sin in such a way as to incur a debt, and again, that debt can't be satisfied. We understand debt, that we live in a society and a world where debt is commonplace. We even have the ability to rank debtors. There are groups out there, different groups that measure debt. There are different categories that you might be in financial institutions and brokers, insurance companies, corporate issuers, um, issuers of asset-backed securities, issuers of government securities. You will fit into one of these categories, and when you're in one of these categories, there are various groups that measure your debt worthiness, that is, your ability to repay that debt. There are top raiders out there, those like Moody, S&P, and Fitch. They, they go and they value debtors to determine whether or not they can repay that debt. And they have a series of qualifying categories that you can be in. The highest being AAA, the lowest being a C. You could be in one of these 21 categories by which they can determine whether or not you're able to repay debt. The idea is that if you are ranked low, the cost of debt will be higher for you. If you ranked higher, your cost of debt is lower. Sense is that if you have a higher ranking, your ability to repay that debt is high. But if you were ranked lower, then that having to repay that debt is going to cost you more to repay it. Well, all of sin is bad debt, and all of sin is, would be ranked on the lowest level because all debt against us, against sin, is an impossible debt. When someone sins against us in a severe way, we feel that, so we're experiencing it, and we have a hard time releasing that debt. So again, it takes this incredible amount of love to be able to be expressed for somebody to be able to richly forgive. But you understand that there are, within the hearts of people, some sins that so rule them they cannot um, release the dead. When they've been sinned against, they are so overwhelmed at being sinned against that they are uh, consumed by it. 
They won't be satisfied, no matter what you give them, no matter what you do. They're the kind of people who have been harmed, and when they've been harmed, they are so consumed about being harmed, they won't release the debt at all. Proverbs 6 tells us about a certain situation like this. Turn over to Proverbs 6, just to kind of set up the, what it looks like to be one who is consumed when they have been sinned against. Solomon is warning his son here in Proverbs 6, starting at verse 21, to be careful how he conducts himself. It's actually verse 20. Careful. And he's wanting his son to listen, care, listen to him. Notice what he says in verse 20. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your neck. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching is a light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. This is Solomon saying to his son, treasure the words that I give you because these words are going to protect you. When you're sleeping, when you're awake, when you're walking about, no matter how you're operating, be governed by these words. Keep them close to you. Bind them around you. Let them guide you, for they are for your protection. Yes, they may reprove you, but they are, again, this is the way of life, to be disciplined and reproved. Embrace it. Notice what he gives the instruction from verse 24 and verse 25, the warning to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her eye catch you with her eyelids. Don't be caught up in her beauty. Don't be taken in. And Solomon here is now going to warn his son about the dangers of giving into adultery. She will show you her beauty. She will lure you in. She will entice your heart. And you are to guard yourself, Solomon is saying to his son. And he wants Solomon, Solomon wants his son to understand the great cost. Notice verse 26. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. And an adulteress hunts for the precious life. It's this statement here in verse 26 that Solomon is going to unpack through the rest of the verses here. Yes, one may be rich, one may have significant resources, but once he engages in this kind of sin, it is going to cost him more than he understands. There are countless businessmen and athletes who could point to the demonstration of this passage. Just Google most expensive divorces and you will begin to see the long list. And notice how many of those are the result of affairs affairs and infidelity. The cost is high. And Solomon is saying to his son here, you will be reduced to the loaf of bread. But Notice how he goes into the depth of this, uh, the cost of this in verse 27 and 28. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? 
The idea that Solomon is laying out here is that the consequences are unavoidable. Just as holding fire close to your chest, you're going to burn your clothes, just as walking on hot coals is going to burn your feet, so is the idea of engaging in adultery. It is going to come with a cost. It's a high cost. It's going to harm Many try it, of course. Many try to escape the consequences. Many, for a period of time, can even deal with the immediate consequences, but they eventually stack up. It is inevitable. That's what 29 indicates. So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. It is inevitable, the consequences. From verse 30, then Solomon gives true insight into the depth of the transgression. Notice verse 30 and 31. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. You see, we can understand a thief who steals because he's hungry, that there is a measure of sympathy. There will be a consequence, and the consequence is to repay sevenfold, but he's not despised as a thief. It's understood when he is hungry why he stole. Yeah, severe consequences. Yeah, there is a natural justice that will come when he is caught. He shouldn't do that, but at least there isn't a, a destruction of one's reputation but not so with adultery. Notice verse 32 through 35. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give him many gifts. The cost is high. The guy, again, who is due to this is lacking sense. He's destroying himself. He is going to engage in this, and he's going to be utterly consumed. He can't hide from his transgression. He can't run from it. He will be destroyed by it because of the jealousy that enrages the husband. But now that's what I wanted to draw our attention to in this particular account is verse 35 again. And notice the consuming effect on the one who's been transgressed. He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied, though you give many gifts. It's like spitting on a fire. You're not going to be able to put it out. The rage will burn That is the bad debt of sin. It produces an unquenchable fire. It produces a rage. It produces a bitterness. It burns and cannot be put out. That's why there is, again, a great demand for the practice of forgiveness. To magnify Lehman, then, here's the example. We certainly don't want sin to rage within us. We don't want bitterness to rage within us like this. But we need to understand that this is the potential. Sin gone unchecked, sin that isn't forgiven, sin that is allowed to rule within the heart and a debt transgressed against us and we hold on to that bitterness when allowed to rule within us will consume us. 
will be then ruling within our own hearts. In fact, many marriages end up falling apart because of a bunch of stacked up small transgressions leading to bitterness that begin to rule and choke out natural love. Relationships are consumed because forgiveness will not take place. And those bad debts keep stacking up. So what I want us to see tonight as we begin to look at this text is the framework by which Philemon was able to operate, to which Paul could appeal to, to call for forgiveness. The kind of love that would be demonstrated so that bitterness wouldn't be kept and it wouldn't consume the kind of love that was modeled regularly that would be appealed to so that forgiveness could be practiced. Just to remind us from last week, the problem of this book, we've seen the characters already, the problem of this book, it relates to around Philemon. Philemon was a man who had invested himself in many interests. And as I said last week, he had come to a point where he likely had come to saving faith under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, if not in Ephesus, at least some other place where Paul and Timothy were around. And he came to faith, and now he is ministering to the church. The church here, as verse 2 says to us, is meeting in your house, referring to Philemon. He is now sharing his very home where the church could gather likely also supporting its minister, previously Epaphras, now Archippus. He was considered, Philemon, as verse 1 indicates, a fellow worker, one who is beloved and one who is a laborer, laboring for the gospel, committed to gospel work, and willing to share his home for the gospel to spread. At this point in, in history, it, that wasn't as big of a deal, but in four short years, it would become a big deal. This book, Philemon, was written around A.D. 60. By A.D. 64, the persecution and hostility of Nero would be lit. The difficulty at that time would become more and more significant. But at this point in time, in Philemon's ministry life, he was able to share his resources with the church to bless the church. Philemon, we can deduce, was a businessman of some kind. He had slaves. Those slaves would care for the needs. Those slaves would minister to he, his family, and to the church, likely, And listen, if the church is in your house, as it was for Philemon here, and he was ministering, and the church is looking at it and coming to his house to meet, then his life is very public. His whole life is right before all the people. The people see where he lives. The people see how he lives. The whole church is present in his courtyard or in his living room. They see the liberties that he takes. They see how he interacts with the help around the house. I mean, you know this naturally. When you go over to the pastor's house, you know you try to peek in the fridge. What does he have in there? Sneak around and see how he keeps the garage. I want to see how he operates. 
In fact, I've had somebody come over to my house and mention that they felt better about having a TV because I have one. <laughs> Even though my wife wants me to hide it. You see, you measure someone, you begin to see somebody's life, you begin to evaluate them even as they are sharing their life publicly, they're being watched. And that was Philemon in this particular case. Philemon is being watched so that when Onesimus ran away, the church would have known about it. They would have known the servant who was there regularly caring for them on Sundays is no longer around it's very likely that Philemon was worried that he may even ask for prayer for the runaway slave or ask for help in trying to find him. Or it is certainly possible that the church themselves were burdened by this because you know how it is as church people. We are burdened by all of those within our sphere of influence, especially for those who do not know the Lord we want to see the grace of God in their life. We will pray for them. We'll reach out to them. We may even slide a track under their food. Trying to give them one chance to hear the gospel, one opportunity. So if, it, of course, Onesimus runs away, the church is going to know about it. I think this is exactly why in Colossians 4.9, when Paul writes back about Onesimus and says to them, he is one of your number. He is one of you. He belongs to you. He is part of your group. Now much more than ever before, he's not just a citizen of that area. He is now a fellow believer like the rest of the Colossians. So when Onesimus left and ran away, and Philemon is left at that moment holding on to what's going to come next, this would be a difficult time for Philemon. The absence of Nesibus would be significant for this group, a burden to some way. For Philemon, it would have called Philemon's practices into question. Why did Nesibus run away? Was it because Philemon was heavy-handed? Was it because there was some kind of deficiency in Philemon? Is there some kind of problem that caused Onesimus to have to depart? Was Philemon not generous? Was he not kind? Was he not loving? Of course, the runaway slave is a significant issue. It's not like today, you know, for us as employees, you know, we're in a free work state. If we don't like a job, we can just decide today, well, I'm going to quit and go on to a new job. It's no legal recourse unless, of course, the employee has stolen something. But if an employee hasn't stolen anything, he is free to go on and find a new job. But not so here as a slave. There's a debt involved. Philemon had shelled out some money at some point, whether that was buying Onesimus from a slave market or whether it was Onesimus having borrowed something from him and then not able to repay it and therefore incurring a, a debt caused him to become a slave. Whatever the matter, he was, it costs Philemon something. So when Onesimus departed, there was a real loss, a monetary loss. But probably even more than a monetary loss, there was possibly also an emotional and physical loss. 
So what would you say to this Philemon? If you were going to write a letter and you were going to encourage Philemon, what would you say to him? Well, we get to see from the pen of the Apostle Paul exactly what Paul said to Philemon. And I want you to start to see in verses 4 through 7, which will be our text tonight, what it is that Paul points to in Philemon, what he draws our attention to. If we were to ask the question, what kind of man is Philemon? Well, we learn what kind of man he is in verses 4 through 7. Here's what Paul writes. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and towards all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Two things that Paul draws out here that I want to draw your attention to. First, Paul demonstrates the character that Philemon has. And then secondly, he prepares Philemon to do what is consistent with his character. He draws out the character of Philemon, showing the kind of man he was, and then prepares Philemon to call him to act by that character. Notice the first, the demonstration of the character of Philemon. He starts in verse 4 with that common phrase there, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers. This is the very common practice of the Apostle Paul to identify spiritual life in people and then to praise God for it. Paul regularly does this. He did this to the Romans in Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Said the same thing for the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.4. I thank my God always concerning you. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease giving thanks for you. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God. 1 Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. This was a common practice of the Apostle Paul to identify expressions of faith, great expressions of faith, and then to use that as a launching ground to praise God. But this is unique in that it is the reference to an individual. Yes, he's speaking to the Roman church, and the Corinthian church, in the Ephesian church, the Colossian church, the Thessalonian church, and now to Philemon individually. He, Paul is seeing in Philemon directly a praiseworthy character, one who he can mention in his prayers. What is he mentioning? Well, verse 5, verse 5 and following explains what Paul would be mentioning. Verse 5, Because I hear of your faith, or of your love and the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. He starts with, and 
The only two times that he's going to use love in this book, verse 5 and verse 7, and he draws it out here and he's saying, I am praising God for your love. The love of Philemon. The generosity of his love expressed. This word love here is the word agape. It's emphasizing again the selfless sacrifice and service that he has. This word agape again in the... uh, uh, expressed here, emphasizing again this selfless sacrifice. It's like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, agape, he gave his only begotten son. The verbal form of the word is used in John 3.16. The noun form is used here in Philemon. He is exercising love. The kind of love described in 1 Corinthians 13.4-8. through 8. The kind of love that was patient and kind and not jealous. We could just basically boil it down to is the kind of love that was selfless and sacrificial. It's demonstrated later in verse 7. You were comforted in your love. Paul saying himself, I was personally joyful and comforted in your love. There's deep care for others. Consumed by a deep care and concern for others. That was Philemon. Philemon was the kind of man who moved around and cared for others' needs. And this was evident of him. I mean, after all, again, the church met in his house. But more than that as well, as one as having the church meeting in his house, he was also one who got out of the way to let others be prominent. It was Epaphras, Colossians tells us, who was the minister of the gospel to the Colossians. It was Epaphras who was sharing the truth. It was Epaphras who was doing the ministry. And yet none of that ministry would have happened if it wasn't for Philemon providing the opportunity and the context for the gospel to be shared. Epaphras was doing the great work of teaching. Epaphras was shepherding. Epaphras was ministering as a laborer for Christ Jesus on Paul's behalf in that area. But it was without Philemon, it would have been a very difficult work. And here was Philemon's generous act of love. No hint of ministry jealousy in Philemon's account. No hint of ministry jealousy. No need for personal recognition. No hint that he needed to have the same kind of honor and attention. He was consumed with loving the saints and satisfied with that very work. Listen, if you cannot love the brethren, you're going to be loving yourself instead. You're going to struggle showing love to others. You're going to struggle even showing forgiveness when you're consumed with a self-love. This isn't Epaphras. It's verse 5. I hear of your love. It has gone out. It is evident. It is expressed. It is demonstrated. It is evidence so that people see it. To the brethren. You can recognize this where the gospel is embraced, agape love is ruling. The kind of selfless 
sacrificial love is ruling where the gospel is embraced. Where the gospel is not embraced, there's jealousy and envy and pride and self-seeking. It's not demonstrated in Philemon here. He had a love for all the saints, and then it says he had a faith in Christ. It's interesting, that phrase there in verse 5, a faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus. Again, realization that he was a professed believer. He was making a common confession. He was acknowledging the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's interesting what Paul says here. It's almost as if Paul is setting up what he is about to ask. Because he could have just said, what you have, your faith, what you have towards Jesus Christ. But he doesn't say towards Jesus Christ. He says through kurios, through the Lord. He's even establishing the master of us all, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an interesting appeal here, reminding the one who is a master himself of the ultimate master whom he has faith in, the Lord Jesus, the one who rules. He realizes that. He realizes that Philemon is a believer, the one who is, again, who rules over others and leads others, is the one under rule himself, and that by faith. The faith that would realize that through Jesus Christ alone, his own sins were forgiven. The faith that realized that he was a debtor set free. The faith that would realize that he too was redeemed out of slavery. The faith that would realize that Christ had died on his behalf. That is what he expressed. And he expressed this kind of faith and love, as the text says, towards all the saints. All the saints would hear of his faith. All of the saints would see his faith. All of the saints would hear of his love and experience his love. But there's more, verse 6. It says, And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Paul says, I'm going to pray specifically for you that you would enjoy the fruits of faith. That you would enjoy the riches of faith. That's what I'm praying for. For Philemon. The fellowship of your faith. That there would be a shared joy of faith amongst the people of God. You see, when... We walk in sin. Sin wars against our fellowship. It wars against our unity. Sin causes disruption and separates. But there is a common practice of faith. When we all are walking faith, there's a common practice that is common amongst us. We all face trials. We all have to learn to love people that are difficult to love. We all get the joy of what it's like when somebody loves us in difficult moments. There's a common fellowship in there. And as we're going to ultimately see in the rest of this book, there's a common fellowship that we are going to have to learn to love others in a deep way, even demonstrating a lavish forgiveness towards them. That is common in the practice of faith. This is the character of Philemon. 
is a man who is filled with love and faith, and that's expressed towards the church and towards Christ. And it's a faith that is practicing in a common fellowship. Now all that is the character of Philemon, to which then Paul, secondly, calls Philemon to act by that character. He wants to encourage him to walk in a way that's consistent with this character. Notice verse 7. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. At this moment, you need to see here, Paul is turning up the heat on Philemon. It's as if Paul is saying this to Philemon, I have said that you are a man filled with love, and now I wish to see that love fully at work. Verse 7 is the setup for what he is about to unfold upon Philemon. But it's what he says about Philemon's love that is so rich. Notice what he says personally, and this is the Apostle Paul himself. I have come to have joy and comfort in your love. What is joy? Well, there's, of course, the personal excitement, the encouragement when someone richly blesses you. And Paul is saying of this, not only have I experienced it, but much more, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Uh, It would be like this, if we think about it. It's Philemon's expression of his gifts the expression of his love, the expression of his faith, brought upon the recipients joy and comfort. I understand how this works. We all do. When somebody lavishes us with a kind of kindness that we ourselves personally cannot afford. I mean... I went into ministry thinking I was just going to have to study all the time and teach and shepherd people. No one told me that it would come with certain side benefits, like boating trips. Never signed up realizing that uh, I've been on many boating trips well beyond what I could ask or imagine. Every time I'm glad it's their boat and not mine. But I enjoyed it, enjoyed the fellowship. Sweetness of the opportunity. Or, I know some think I'm overpaid already, but I don't have any personal enrollment in a golf club. And yet I've been taken to many exclusive golf courses, having the opportunity to play and been encouraged greatly. By the grace of God and the the mercies shown out, The idea here is that Philemon, in the lavishness of his wealth, cared and ministered to the faith of those people around so that there was joy and comfort. 
In Paul's particular case, it was his personal joy and comfort in seeing Philemon's love demonstrated to the saints so that, as the text says, that they were refreshed. They were encouraged. They were built up and edified. The wayward traveler who was tired, able to come to Philemon's house for rest, to stay the night to have a meal. The person who was burdened financially, cared for, and ministered to, refreshed, comforted. The idea is there was such an expression of love and generosity from Philemon that it caused those who were under its care to be lifted up and re-energized, refreshed, a lavish generosity. And it filled, again, the hearts of God's people with joy. It filled the hearts of God's people with comfort because he poured out this kind of lavishness upon them. And that's what Paul is then going to appeal to here in Philemon. You regularly demonstrate this kind of love that is a lavish. Look, there are two kinds of givers, at least. There's the kind of giver who seeks a reward from men or the kind of giver who seeks the reward in favor of God. There are some who give concerned about what they're going to gain in return. Not so with Philemon, though. Here he was giving, and as he was giving, he was refreshing God's people. He was lightening their load. He was bringing encouragement to them and comfort. As he was refreshing the saints, Paul, observing that, was taking personal comfort and joy from it. That was the kind of man that Philemon was. And one more indication of him, verse 7 says, he calls him brother. This is a brother in the Lord. Paul is reminding Philemon of his roots, his character, and he's setting up. Now let me draw an implication here. Is this manipulation? Is this kind of buttering somebody up and kind of warming them up to say, man, brother, you were so good. You were so faithful. I pray for you regularly. This kind of really just buttering them up to ask for something really big. Is this a kind of spiritual bullying of the Apostle Paul on Philemon where he is going to intimidate Philemon into showing a love and generosity to Onesimus? I mean, Paul is building him up, speaking of the kind of love that Philemon has demonstrated in the past and is going to be expected to demonstrate in the future that it would raise within one's heart this very temptation to believe, Paul, you are manipulating the circumstances. Well, I don't believe that's the case, for at least a couple reasons. But I would recognize that that would be the heart filled with bitterness. If at this moment Philemon's heart was filled with bitterness because now Onesimus is returning, Philemon is going to call into question these very words that Paul was stating. But this cannot be 
manipulation. Why? Well, first of all, is inspired by the Spirit of God. We're going to say then that God inspired this. Can't be manipulation. Can't be manipulation. Second of all, it can't be manipulation to call people to act consistently to their faith. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. You have already demonstrated faith, Philemon. Continue to act consistently to that faith. It's not manipulation to call people to act in what they professed. Spiritual encouragement. It's righteous. But if there was bitterness in Philemon's heart, if he thought that there was a debt owed him and he was unwilling to let go of that debt, he would be hurt by these very words of Paul, cornering him. And as I said, cornering him in front of the whole church. If there was bitterness in his heart, by the time Paul says, prepare a room for me so I'm going to come to stay, Philemon would be sending a letter back, uh, no need, this inn is full. Obviously, we have no such record. But that's what, the bitter, that's what would happen if there was bitterness in the heart. Problem is that when sin comes against us, we are tempted to think that that debt is worth holding on to. And we kill love. And when we kill love, we take on every hurt and we read into every circumstance and we begin to question every detail and we begin to imagine hurts even, uh, even if they're unsubstantiated. We become so consumed by the personal hurts that we can't even receive a blessing and an encouragement because we're so consumed by the hurts. This is a genuine, I believe, a genuine expression of the love of the Apostle Paul to Philemon, but the heart filled with bitterness wouldn't even be able to see it. But Paul doesn't believe that this is how Philemon's going to act. It's not going to act in bitterness. It's not going to be consumed by that bitterness. It's going to be filled with a love, a kind of love that has been practiced from before, a kind of love that refreshed and built up and edified. Why? Because Philemon is a fellow brother. He is a believer. I like that last singular word there in verse 7. I recognize you as a brother. It's not speaking to the whole church here at this moment. Focus has now become straight to Philemon. It is you, singular. It is you, your work, It is you, brother. Philemon has been called out in front of the whole congregation. And what has been true about Philemon, the kind of character he has, is now going to be demonstrated before the whole church. This isn't intimidation. This isn't manipulation. It's a call of attention to godliness. And this is Paul's encouragement to help Philemon do what's right. This is, again, another great example for us. Our Christian life is walked out in public. We try to hide. We do try to pull away. We don't want everyone to see our strengths and weaknesses. But it is always before the watchful eye of God. And in this particular case, Philemon's life is now between the watchful eye of the church. The church is going to observe. They're going to see what he does. And I'm pretty sure 
there was any temptation within Philemon to drift back, the whole church would remind him of the very words that Paul just said there. You regularly refreshed us. Refresh Onesimus. And refresh Paul again. Show that genuine love. Next week we'll come back and look at this appeal for Onesimus and the expression of love. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this great example. We do pray that there would be such a genuine pursuit of godliness among all of your people that we would never question from one another the exhortation to do right, but that we would welcome it and rejoice in it. For we desire your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we desire for the riches of love and faith to be on display. And the encouragements of the saints would grow more and more. But we also recognize at times in doing what is right, we feel harmed and mistreated feel like an injustice has taken place. And may it be in those moments when those temptations well up within us that we realize that bitterness is starting to creep into the cracks of our heart and starting to begin to kill our natural affections for one another and starting to grip our hearts and lead us astray. So that we need to go back to the rich soils of love and we need to go back to the riches of our faith and remind ourselves of your marvelous work so that we would be refreshed anew again ourselves with your truth, ready to minister to saints of God. Thankful for this book and the lessons we've learned from it. And may we grow this week learning to identify ways in which we can be demonstrating this magnanimous love. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.